This is an ABC podcast. In February 2021, the Harvard Business Review published a piece that was called The Burnout Crisis. The article said that in our always-on world, burnout has long been a threat. But in 2020, burnout became rampant, seemingly overnight. Well, why am I not surprised? Professor Gordon Parker is here. He's been focusing on this issue in recent years, and the course of his complex and fascinating life might have put him at risk of burnout himself. Gordon Parker is an extremely eminent psychiatrist who spent most of his life working to understand the mood disorders that afflict modern Australians, particularly depressive conditions and anxiety. Professor Gordon Parker is the founder and the initial executive director of the esteemed Black Dog Institute, and he's the co-author of a new book called Burnout, a guide to identifying burnout and pathways to recovery. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Richard. How do you define burnout? Maybe if I start with the definition that has uh, been prominent for four decades now, we basically said burnout was a syndrome with three broad symptoms. The first one was exhaustion. Secondly, a lack of empathy or depersonalization. And thirdly, compromised work performance. As a researcher, I've always been interested in uh, looking at a concept and saying, does this have validity? Can we improve on it? And what we found was a much richer set of symptoms to making up the syndrome. Well, the key one, as in the standard definition, is exhaustion. So people feel exhausted right across the day. The second one, which was described as a loss of empathy, sounds as though it's a bit of a judgment call where the person, in a sense, is being callous towards the other person. But in our research, we found a much broader construct where it's more a lack of feeling tone. So it's not just reduced empathy, but the person's not feeling very much in any scenario or any environment. They feel tuned out. They've not got much joy to be in life, and so they tend to become fairly insular. Many of the parts of the brain actually actually shut down. So I think that's probably the better explanation for this lack of feeling tone. And then that allows me to raise another key symptom in burnout as we've defined it, and that is where the individual says they have, in essence, cognitive problems. So they say, I just can't register information as I used to do. Or when I read, I tend to scan rather than take things in. And if you look at the ancient descriptions of burnout going back to 300 years AD, where it affected the monks, there was an epidemic of the monks uh, in Egypt in 300 AD. It was called Achidia then and was the eighth cardinal sin. So looking at the descriptions of Achidia, then cognitive impairment was a key component. So it's got a long history as being an important contributor to the description of burnout. In addition to those key components, people generally will report, or they'll use the word lack a lot of the time. So they'll say, I have a lack of energy, I lack sleep, I lack pleasure. So sleep disturbance is common despite people being exhausted. And along with that goes a lot of anxiety, depression, irritability, uh, and so on and so forth. In addition, physical function can be compromised in severe cases. Arianna Huffington, when she developed burnout, she describes in her book how it came on suddenly and she just fell to the ground hitting her head on a table. Other people become incontinent and defence mechanisms are also compromised. So the people will often report more infections. So it's a much broader syndrome than... (laughs) has been defined for so many decades. And much more acute in the way you're describing it as well. It can be acute, And somewhat more terrifying as well. Is this a peculiarly modern malaise? Is this something that's been exacerbated by our always-on 24-hour-a-day emails, text messages, round-the-clock life that we increasingly live? Well, as I suggested, it, it goes back a long way and was the eighth cardinal sin before. So it's always existed, but the pace of life in recent decades, particularly the last couple of decades... 
as uh, cause burnout to become the epidemic. And I think the word is often epidemic is thrown around a lot. Mm. But I think it does apply very well to burnout because if we look at the data, we find about 30% of workers will develop burnout at some stage of their work career. If we look at doctors, at any one time, about 30% will have burnout and over their career, about 60%. But the 24-7 demands are the biggest factor implicated in burnout these days. And examples in, in Arianna Huffington's book of one man whose hands would twitch if he was ever away from the phone. Uh, another man who couldn't even have a pee at the toilet without becoming bored. Another one who was reading emails while he's reading nighttime books to his children. They all sort of capture the, the pressure of life. And what we've found is that burnout rates are also very high and the pattern is exactly the same in people who have demanding home care responsibilities, whether it be for looking after children, particularly if the children have intellectual or other difficulties, if they're looking after elderly parents who may also have problems, or if they're in the so-called sandwich situation where they're looking after both, it's equally common. And in addition to that, the pace of life and the requirement to be on call 24-7, uh, burnout rates are higher in women, and uh, the relevance here is that we've increasingly expected that women will hold down a formal job, also be the homekeeper, be the dutiful wife, look after the children, look after the elderly parents, and so on and so forth. So I think we can reasonably implicate a whole series of societal changes, but particularly the 24-7 always being on call and at the ready. And with us being addicted to all our mobile phones and our iPads and never turning them off and therefore never turning ourselves off. So what's the treatment for it? Is it more sleep, more rest, deleting all your social media apps? What do you recommend, uh, doctor, in this case? <laughs> okay. I, I think I'd like to uh, take it from two perspectives. So um, first of all, what do people with burnout report as being helpful? And in one study, we interviewed over 1,200 people and basically they said talking to somebody else, meaning ventilating, getting their story out and obviously getting support, uh, having a holiday or having a break, exercise, and then after that came mindfulness and meditation. So that's what people with burnout report as, as useful we come up with a management model that has three principal components. The first one is to identify the work pressures. Is it the hours of work being too demanding? Is it that they are in conflict with the values of the employer or the company? Are they being terrorised or in a toxic work environment? So the, the first thing is obviously to identify the workplace stresses and see what you can do about them. And then the next aspect is a series of de-stressing options. We did a review of the literature and basically they concluded that nothing seemed to, to work. But when we reviewed the literature and again when we talked to people, the key de-stressing strategies are ones like turning off your 24-7 presence. So putting circuit breakers into your existence, so turning your phone off at a certain night, pacing yourself and prioritising your needs when appropriate, and that's not suggesting you are selfish, but you are resisting the requirement to be on duty the whole time. And Patria King, who has been the founder and driver of Quest for Life, gives a wonderful personal story of how she was working you know, 12-hour days, working at weekends, going in, looking after AIDS patients, never having time off. When she had her burnout, she learned how to not put herself constantly in the firing line and not to become selfish, but to prioritise her own needs so that she didn't burn out and then everybody else suffered. In addition, I think the literature does suggest that mindfulness meditation is probably one of the best strategies around. But there are many people who say, well, look, I can't meditate. And for them, it may be um, yoga 
Or it may be uh, something like golf, where you can tune out amid nature. So the whole series of de-stressing strategies that need to come into play. And then there's a key third component, Richard, and one that I haven't touched on up till now. The people that have modelled burnout after, over the last few decades have suggested that the individual brings nothing to the story, that it's a simple formula linking workplace pressures impacting on an individual. What we've found in our research is that there's a key predisposing personality style. And basically, burnout is much more likely to be experienced by good people. These are people who are caring, <laughs> dutiful, reliable, <laughs> if not uh, perfectionistic. And in a sense, it does make total sense, doesn't it? Because mm. these are the people that are going to care for their children more assiduously, more conscientiously, care for elderly parents, keep on caring. At work, they're going to work longer hours, they're going to make a greater commitment to everything. For years as a psychiatrist, I sort of worked with the aphorism, you don't treat perfectionists, you employ them. This is a key driver, and as somebody said a few months back, when I made reference to this personality style, they said, Gordon, I now understand why sociopaths never develop burnout. <laughs> so this raises another management component to burnout. That is, if somebody is highly dutiful and diligent, you really need to encourage them to modulate that personality style because that's contributed to them developing the burnout. And it often contributes them to getting locked into situations where the burnout factors just impinge and keep on driving the burnout syndrome and driving them into the dust. This brings us to diagnosis. When you received the Australian Mental Health Prize in 2020, you said that you wanted to draw attention to the small number of people receiving a diagnosis. You said psychiatry had lost its way in this matter. What did you mean by that? Yes, this is a, a bit of a campaign that I have uh, felt strongly about for, for decades. And in fact, right from the time I went into psychiatry, I was struck by the dominant model then was to avoid a diagnosis. And this struck me as bizarre. I mean, the why, rest of yeah, Why was the thinking behind it? Why would you want to avoid a diagnosis? Why would you want to avoid putting your finger on the problem? Uh, because your discipline tended to give you a one-size-fits-all model. If you're, as a practitioner, you were sort of weighting psychoanalysis as your treatment modality, then you gave everybody psychoanalysis and therefore diagnosis was irrelevant. If you're a person that gave everyone medication, then it didn't matter. You gave everyone medication. And the model was essentially the old aphorism that if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And so diagnosis didn't matter. And decades later, I still see so many patients who've come to me and they've seen X number of psychiatrists and I'll say to them, well, you know, what diagnosis did you get? Oh, no, the doctor never gave me one. And I don't shake my head too much, but um, I've, I've learned to keep that under control. <laughs> but to my mind, that is, if you like, almost inexcusable. There was a journalist called Catherine Montgomery who wrote a lovely book called How Doctors Think. And in that book, she says that you need a diagnosis because once you've got a diagnosis, you've got a starting point. And that's when your life with your disease, your illness, your condition can really start. And these days, I think it's even more important because as people are more and more informed, they have the opportunity to challenge that diagnosis with their practitioner. They have the opportunity to go on Google and look at other sources and find everything that they wish to find. And then they can come back with intelligent questions and seek more information. How specific should that diagnosis be? Like when someone is told that they have depression, for example, yeah. does that tell you much? Well, <laughs> this is another big campaign that I've run. In 1983, the American Diagnostic Manual, uh, DSM, which classifies all psychiatric conditions, ad adopted a new model for the depressive disorders. Basically, for some 2,000 years, there'd been a model where depression was essentially regarded as either biological 
uh, meaning genetic origins, and it just came along and hit people out of the blue. It was called endogenous because it came from within. And then there was a reactive adjustment-type depression. And you can even go back to St. Paul to the Corinthians where he talks about depressions that were from God and others that were from the world, implicating endogenous, God-caused, uh, but what we now know as biologically-caused depressions, and then others that were explainable by environmental events. So DSM came along in 1983 and abandoned that model and came up with a very simple model where the depressive disorders were listed as either major or minor. And it lumped together a whole series of quite differing depressive conditions, some biological, some due to psychological factors, some due to social factors. And in so doing, it caused profound confusion, which has persisted ever since. It doesn't help you much when you're talking about something like bipolar disorder, for example, does no, it? No, no, no. And that's another subcategory. But to my mind, if a patient is given a diagnosis of major depression, that's no more informative than your GP saying to you, I know what you've got, you've got major breathlessness. I mean, if you got that diagnosis from your GP, you, you wouldn't be impressed. You'd want to know whether you had pneumonia or a pulmonary embolus or asthma because you know respectively you get an antibiotic or an anticoagulant. So, so many patients get this uninformed diagnosis of major depression, which is just homogenizing multiple differing depressive conditions. And then they then get the treatment that reflects the background discipline of the particular practitioner. So, for instance, if you go to a doctor and you get a diagnosis of major depression, then you're probably going to get a drug. If you go to a psychologist with the same type of depression, you'll probably get cognitive behaviour therapy. <laughs> if you go to a counsellor, you'll get counselling. And if you go to a lady wearing caftan, you'll get crystal therapy. And to my mind, that, that's got, got, it's, got the, it's got the story the wrong way around, mm. where the background discipline or training of the practitioner shapes the therapy. And then the therapy is often a sort of one-size-fits-all model. So I've campaigned for a long period of time for a restoration of the old-fashioned binary model that saying that there are some you know, biological conditions of depression, which we either call endogenous depression, but these days we're more likely to call melancholia, and a whole series of reactive depressive disorders. We're all with their defining uh, symptoms and signs and all deserving tailored treatments. So by and large... The biological depressive disorders like melancholia tend to benefit most from medication. But the great majority of depressive disorders, the non-melancholic ones, will probably benefit from psychological therapies, common sense advice, uh, and so on. So that's a long-standing campaign. And then you also raise the issue of bipolar disorder. And to my mind, that's another concerning story where we know that in every Western country, most people with a bipolar disorder never get the diagnosis in their lifetime. We know that of those who do, the average interval in Australia, in England and in America is about two decades. Bipolar 2, which is the minor version of bipolar, I mean, we divide the bipolar disorders into bipolar 1, bipolar 2. Bipolar 1 is old-fashioned manic depression and individuals are generally psychotic when they're high. In bipolar 2, the individual is never psychotic when they're high. Now, the prevalence of bipolar 2 in this country could be anything up to 5%. And yet, when people have a bipolar disorder, they generally don't know what's going on. They know that they have periods of depression, they feel extremely depressed. But they generally don't know what the highs mean. And so when they are seeking help, they go to a doctor and they describe their depression. They hardly ever talk about their highs because they love their highs, they enjoy them. If the doctor doesn't ask the screening question about highs, bipolar disorder will also get missed. And so that's been another campaign that I've been running for a couple of decades to make people more aware of bipolar disorder. And at one stage, we developed a screening measure for bipolar disorder, which we uh, had on the Black Dog Institute website for a number of, or oh, over a decade. And that was getting 30,000 hits a month. And it has about 80% accuracy. And that was something that went a long way 
in terms of my campaign to ensure that people were more likely, when they had a mood disorder, to get a more refined diagnosis. Yes, you know, you've got melancholia. No, this is not a biological depression, it's due to X, Y, Z. Uh, no, you've actually got a bipolar 2 disorder. Let me take you through the nuances. So I, I think in medicine, we have seen the opposite pattern where we've seen a diagnosis defined and refined. So we don't just talk about diabetes, you talk about type 1, type 2. But what has happened in psychiatry, diagnosis has not had much valency. And so many people still, when they see a psychiatrist, will just get, I'm going to give you the following treatment without ever getting a diagnosis. And that, as I say, I think is less than ideal. I interviewed Tom Keneally quite a few years ago and he'd, he'd written a multi-volume history of Australia. And it was his thought that the people of his parents and grandparents' generation were not as subject to mood disorders, mental disorders, uh, depressive illnesses as people are today. And I, th I think he, he was thinking that the, there was just too much war, poverty and economic crisis around and it pushed all that aside. What do you suppose? I think, Richard, there are two factors in play. Firstly, there may well have been a true increase in some of the mood disorders. There was a very interesting study looking at rates of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia around the world and looking at various factors. And there was a link between fish oil consumption and bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 in the order of over 80, 80%. Wow. Um, <laughs> with, but nothing with schizophrenia. So it may, may well be that our diet and other factors have caused an increase in some mood disorders. So that are, you be, saying that the, are you saying that like the Catholic predilection to have fish on a Friday might have, <laughs> might have actually helped, helped out quite a few people in that well, sense? Well, just like making a diagnosis is important, <laughs> deciding which fish to take is very important. You have to take an oily fish and yeah. it ha you have to make sure that it's not being farmed <laughs> because it, in, in the wild, the only, the only fish that have the proper omega-3 are those that have eaten little fish who have then in turn eaten, you know, smaller fish. So there may well be a real increase in some of the mood disorders, but there's also been the issue of redefining depression. And when the first antidepressant drug was discovered in the 1950s, the manufacturer decided not to take it to market because they didn't think there were enough people in the world with depression. And it only went to market because the CEO's wife had significant depression. She asked her husband to try it and she got better. And so they took it to market. In the 50s, the, the expected lifetime risk of clinical depression was, would put it about 1%. Then, particularly in the 80s, suddenly the story changed because the definition of major depression was really set at such a low level that, in fact, it became almost all-encompassing. So when major depression was defined and promulgated and epidemiological studies came out, they found that one in four women and one in six men then met lifetime criteria for major depression. If you then applied other DSM depressive categories, the minor depressive disorders, then basically you get about 80% of people having a lifetime risk of depression. Depression was always there, but it was probably around about 1% to 5%. But what has happened since the 80s Psychiatry has proselytized clinical depression and dropped the definition progressively to a level where there's a real boundary problem as to whether this is real clinical depression or just normal depression. That has then led uh, to a big public backlash about you know, psychiatry engaging in cosmetic psychopharmacology what do you mean by that? Do you mean like people just handing out drugs to improve yeah, some self-diagnosed mood? People are getting drugs mean? when they don't have a substantive clinical uh, condition. And also concern amongst the profession that, that depression is being overdiagnosed. And I share that concern. But where are we now? I think the truth is somewhere between those two broad periods. I think the 1% figure in the 1950s was far too low. And what was happening was depression wasn't talked about. And it wasn't talked about right through until, you know, recent decades. And therefore people, when they were depressed, felt they had to suffer in silence or they felt that it was a character flaw 
And so one of the things that I think we feel comfortably proud about in terms of when we established the Black Dog Institute was we set out with a very major destigmatizing campaign involving getting politicians who'd experienced mood disorders, getting elite athletes to talk about it, to democratize the concept of, of depression. And interestingly, around about 2000, when Black Dog was set up and just after Black uh, Beyond Blue was set up, the suicide rate in Australia actually decreased. It, and it decreased most distinctly in young males aged 18 to um, late 20s. It dropped and you from, can put that down to the reduction in stigma, do you think? Yes, it, well, it dropped from 40 per 100,000 to 18 per 100,000. And we, we, of course, we don't know the factors for sure. But I think destigmatizing was powerful in getting people talking about depression and then being more likely to seek help. Now, that drop in suicide, unfortunately, hasn't continued. And we've seen, you know, the, the reverse and this tragic increase in the, last, in the last decade. But I think destigmatization played a very important role. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, Gordon, uh, I'd, I'd like to, if I may be so impertinent, put you on the couch yourself a bit here. Um, you may be unaware uh, I have an advanced degree in psychiatry myself that I got from a university in the Midwest of the United States for $3.50 and it arrived in the mail, so I, I feel quite qualified to do this. Yes, thank you, Dr. Freudler. <laughs> okay. I, I want to take you back to, uh, in your memoir, the, the most harrowing and distressing image that you've got in your, your memoir, which is the sight of your father mowing the lawn in a collar and tie. <laughs> Who's idea was it for your father to mow the lawn in a collar and tie? No, uh, this was my mother in play. My mother uh, believed you know, very strongly in manners and impressions and appearances. And so if anyone came to the door, they'd have to wait 20 minutes before she was uh, properly dressed and had everything in place. You write very affectionately about it. So what did you love about your mum? Yes, she was incredibly caring. And it wasn't just to me, but um, she was a chief physiotherapist at uh, Crown Street and she was incredibly caring of the patients she looked after. She would go in at weekends and often give them presents and do all sorts of things. So she was a very, she was a very caring mother, but also a hoot. My father called her mischief, which we abbreviated to Mishy, because there was this mischievous streak in her younger years, her parents once suggested that it might be an idea to uh, have a door between the living room and the dining room, and she just went into the back room, got a sledgehammer, knocked it down, and <laughs> sort of <laughs> created the space <laughs> with the assumption that, you know, you didn't need any foundation to hold the rooms up. Sorry, this is a woman who'll pick up a sledgehammer to knock down a wall, yet will take half an hour before she can answer the door to make sure she's dressed up to the nines and have all her makeup on. Yes, yes. It, there was this wonderful sort of combination of uh, <laughs> having everything under control and then not having under control. And um, I mean, She had a little touch of vanity, so she wouldn't wear her glasses, and that would mean that if you were driving the car with her across the Harbour Bridge, you could be in any lane at any one time. And it also was a bit tough on the policeman because she didn't quite appreciate that when a car goes round corners, the back wheels cut in a bit. So I still remember the scene of a policeman coming down our drive, hobbling, in fact, because she'd not even sort of wiped him with the indicator wiper, but she'd run over his toes. <laughs> but then she took great offence at a policeman coming to our door because what would the neighbours think? <laughs> You say there was an incident in your youth where invo that involved your mother that introduced you or sort of started to introduce you to the whole idea of pattern recognition. Tell me what happened on that day. Oh, I dived into the surf at Newport <laughs> and uh, I'd hit a sandbar and I broke my neck. 
And I felt pretty horrible, so I lay on the sand for a bit, and that didn't help, so I went back on the surf to see if I could free it up. It didn't work. And I went up to the lifesaver, and he just basically said, oh, you'll be right, mate. And then I hitchhiked back, lying in the back of a truck with my friend, walked through my friend's house. His father was a doctor. He said, how are you? And I said, fine. Kept on walking, hopped on my push bike, drove back to our family home. And as I whizzed down the drive, my mother walked out of the house and she said, you're going to hospital right now. Anyway, I went to North Shore Hospital. The doctors weren't very interested. They said, do this, do that, touch your toes, climb on this table. And then when the x-rays came back and showed fracture dislocation of C345, everything happened. So John Grant, the wonderful surgeon, came back from his holidays and I was in traction for several months. My mother saw something that alerted her. What do you think she well, saw? Well, afterwards, she was never quite sure, but she thought there was something about the white of my eyes that was different. It was as fine-focused as that. So this issue of pattern analysis is central to my brain and my psyche and, and in many ways to my story. I think I'm more right-brain dominated than, than left-brain, and that means... I'm more into abstract thinking, creative activities, and pattern analysis. When I was a medical student, one of the components was in the paediatric term is you're given a case and you had to work out what the diagnosis was. I spent a week on it. I had no idea. So eventually I rang my uncle, who was a distinguished Sydney surgeon. He heard the story, and after 30 seconds, he just said, what's the model here? And I said, I've got no idea. He repeated himself, and I repeated, I had no idea. And he said, multi-system disorder. And I went, huh? And he said, and it, there'll be only three explanations for that. And the most likely one is congenital syphilis. So I went back to the big conference the following week and I was asked in this sort of coliseum of intimidation of medical students that occurred in those days by the, the chief honcho as to what was my diagnosis. And I nonchalantly gently led to that this was a uh, multi-system disorder and therefore probably as I reflected on, would probably be congenital syphilis, to which he just burst out laughing. But then a couple of minutes later, in came the pathologist and said the diagnosis was congenital syphilis. So that was my uncle showing the capacity to pick up a pattern. And the third example was, as a medical student, senior medical student, we were up on a boozy Surface Paradise conference, and one morning, I looked out over the beach and I saw this young woman walking along in a bikini. I didn't recognize her, but she was walking along the edge of the ocean. And the word Undine came into my head. So I wandered down and chatted to her, and she was a medical student that I knew. But eventually, we kept on walking, and then eventually we got married, and it's been a wonderful marriage. And it was only years after that event that I looked up the word Undine because I'd never heard of the word before. And I looked it up and it's sometimes spelt and pronounced Undine, sometimes Undine. And it means sea spirit or one with nature. Mm. And so I was getting some sort of pattern analysis component emanating from my wife, hitting up something in my brain and picking out a personality characteristic that has marked her wonderful uh, temperament and personality over the years. And as a psychiatrist, I've therefore tended to really weight pattern analysis so that when somebody's walking into the room, I'm looking at whether they're swinging their arms and what the, what the light in their eyes is like and so on and so forth. That's the right part of my brain operating. I, I've been over, over the years able to switch into a left brain mode. And so when I'm doing a, a history take, I, I'm switching the whole time from right brain to left brain. But pattern analysis, to my mind, is central to the practice of psychiatry because we have no blood tests and therefore we have to look at what the, what the pattern is. Can I just go back and ask you about you observing your wife-to-be walking yeah. along the beach like that? Do you think that's what the phenomenon of love at first sight is? And I, I absolutely know that that's a thing, that, that you do, that does happen to people. Uh, do you think what was happening when you saw her walking towards you was you were observing so much of how she was and how she carried herself in all sorts of ways that you, you could barely register in a way that all just sort of crowded in at once and went, oh yeah, this, this, this is her. I think that is highly likely to be true but it does raise a serious question. Why did the word Undine come into yes, my head yes, does, when I yeah. was unaware of it? 
And, and how long have you been married now? Well, we had our, our 50th anniversary a few years ago. <laughs> so it's a kind of a, a, a glorious impetuousness or something at work there. Um, well, that's, I think, in a sense, a vignette of my life story, a mix of impetuous decision-making and then hesitancy and then a contemplative phase. But certainly there are times when Heather has said to me, I mean, the example, I was going off to a conference in Western Australia and I had this great opening line and Heather said to me, don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> I, I ignored her, I did make the statement and I got hit by a woman with a handbag as I walked off the stage. <laughs> so the impetuosity has worked right. out probably 50, 50. Okay. <laughs> 10%. <laughs> really interesting, one of the most interesting things I found reading your memoir, which came out about 10 years ago, was you said there was a moment, I think you said it was in your early 20s, when you had a sense that your brain had shifted, something had shifted in your head. Tell me how you noticed that. It, it was very dramatic, and I told people that while it, that weekend we're out sailing on a 16-foot skiff and there was a big manly ferry coming directly towards us, and they looked at me completely perplexed and they didn't know how to respond. But, but basically I'd spent adolescent daydreaming in a sort of right-brain mode, and then I was, had become a junior doctor, and as being a junior doctor, I now had to really focus using my left brain so that I could make diagnoses and clarify those diagnoses. And so that process occurred so abruptly that I thought it was noteworthy, although none of my friends thought it was of any note at all. And subsequent to that, I've, I've learned the capacity to switch from one modality to the other, to the left brain when I need to, and then then switch to the right brain. So as a clinician, I, I tend to be doing that all the time. The way you're saying that, you say it's, it's like you were saying there's a part of you that's standing outside your brain going, hmm, I'm clearly working the left brain side of my, my head now and then I'm shifting. The, what is that part of you? Is it the superego? What is, what is that? Do you wonder at that? I wonder at it, but I cannot, I cannot explain it. I... I think that I'm intrinsically right-brained so that when I'm seeing a patient and trying to clarify diagnosis and differential diagnosis, I'm more right-brain focused and then I have to force myself into, my, into a left-brain mode to make sure. I suppose what I'm asking is it sounds like that for you and for anyone else that our, our, our heads are crowded with different people and there's some voice, the one that's talking to me now, that's adjudicating it all. Is that how you see it? To a degree, yes. And there's a wonderful book written by Danny Kahneman called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow that I think is absolutely perfect for taking study of this phenomenon further. And there's a wonderful vignette in that he says to test people whether they're right-brained or left-brained, he says, consider this, a bat and a ball cost a dollar cents, a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. So how much does the ball cost? And the answer most people come up with is, is 10 cents, but the real answer is 5 cents. So people who are left-brained, if they're given the time to think about this question, will get the 5 cents right. But the great majority of people will go for 10 cents. That's because their abstract brain, their fast brain, is wanting to immediately come to a decision. And so, again, in, in my practice as a clinician, I have to be very careful about my right brain, that it's going to be intuitive, it's going to be impulsive. And so I need to check on it, its decision-making capacities. You stepped away from medicine for a little while and became a writer. And you even wrote for TV, you wrote for the legendary Mavis Bramston show on Channel 7, which is, I think, the first satirical TV show ever to appear on Australian TV. Uh, you wrote a comic novel, Obviously, that appealed to one part of you. Why did, why did, why did you leave writing and, and then go into psychiatry? I think there was a step before that where I was indirectly encouraged by my mother to do medicine. And I was a bit ambivalent. But in fact, when I broke my neck, I went into it, having been persuaded by seeing so many wonderful doctors that this was going to be my career. But my medical student career wasn't a greatly successful one. I, I was a plodding student. And so I wondered whether, in fact, I had the right attributes. And so around fourth-year medicine, I wrote a book of fiction and gave it to the wonderful Lloyd O'Neill from Lansdowne Press. And he said, well, look, I like it. We could publish it, but you haven't got a track record. So track record, I'll go out and get a track record. And so I then started writing for Oz magazine. I started doing 
broadcasts for um, the ABC Science Show. I was a cartoonist for uh, the Bulletin. And then the wonderful Mavis Bramson show, as you say, it was the first satirical um, show in, in television Australia. And I, again, this, this capacity as an only child just to sort of rock up to the station and say, well, look, I've got a skit. And they were wonderful years of creative writing. And then I went back and the book was published in 1966 as a book of fiction. Um, but I had then, <laughs> paradoxically, distracted by all the writing, my grades in medicine improved. And so I did make the compromise. And then I decided I would train in surgery, but I found fairly rapidly that I was technically incompetent. And then I was quite lost. But two close friends took me out and said, you should do psychiatry. And because I trusted them, I decided I'd give it a go. And then once I was training in psychiatry, I was like a pig in mud because it it was just the most wonderful experience to see people with terrible psychiatric disorders but showing grit and tenacity and so on. So psychiatry was my field and it involved abstract thinking and it involved creative thinking and so it became my my destiny. You trained at Callan Park Mental Hospital in Sydney in, in Roselle. Yep. Tell me what you observed by observing an extraordinary family therapist there by the name of Margaret Topham, how she, she was asked to treat a, a problem daughter in a family. Yes, Margaret was a social worker um, who went and trained in family therapy. And I would sit in on her sessions and a family came along and <laughs> the problem was their adolescent daughter who was going out with a psychopathic man who'd just got out of Long Bay Jail. And the father insisted that she was the patient and that he, perhaps with his wife, and she might take part in a family session, but nobody else. Anyway, Margaret said, no, all in, otherwise it's no deal. And he said, but look, our seven-year-old son, um, I mean, he's too young to be involved in anything like this. And she said, no, no, we've all got to be in the one room. Anyway, <laughs> when we had the opening moments of the family therapy session and she said, what's the problem? Most people were silent. Others sort of held their hands out as if they were mystified. And then the seven-year-old son who was sitting in the corner piped up and said, Dad's an alcoholic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he hit the spot. Dad's alcoholism was the key driver of so many things in the family. And so that was, that was a magical session, but it showed the magic of good family therapy. And it was so inspiring. And I can still think of times sitting it on Margaret and then going to the theatre and some Chekhov play and <laughs> thinking that Margaret's family therapy was far more involving and absorbing and informative than going to the theatre. A defining characteristic of people who have depressive disorders is that they're often quite intelligent and sensitive people. Have you had them, depressive episodes? Have I had depressive mm. episodes? Mm. Not clinical depressive episodes, no. I mean, a depressed mood is a normal experience. We all, if we define, you know, a depressed mood as to be depressed, to be self-critical, to have a drop in your self-esteem, self-worth, well, that's, that's a normal experience. It happens to everybody. Uh, it may last one to three days. It may last under the wallabies wind or something <laughs> like that. How about being chronically depressed, though, like for weeks at a time? That starts to then become clinical depression. So... The boundary between clinical and normal depression is imprecise, but certainly duration is a factor, as long, and, and along with that goes severity and certain symptoms, symptoms such as inability to be cheered up, inability to get pleasure in life, lack of energy, inability to get out of bed. So, uh, no, I haven't experienced clinical depression, luckily, thank God. Often we use medical terms to talk about things like depression. Is that all that helpful? Because it's not like, you know, having depression is not like having chickenpox, is it? I think it's appropriate to start a conversation to say um, to somebody, for whatever reason, you may want to give that information, I've had depression. If you go in boots and all and say, well, look, I've got melancholic depression or I've got non-melancholic depression which is caused by a perfectionistic personality style, I mean, it's just not going to work. So by saying you have depression, it's really an opening gambit to see whether that person wants to hear about it or whether they want to deny it or whether they want to rebuff you. I will encourage patients to, whatever their diagnosis is, to talk openly to their family members about it. 
in terms of employers these days, I also encourage people to be comfortable about, as long as they're not, you know, in a situation where they're, uh, you know, in a toxic work environment to tell their boss they've got depression. I'm not so confident about that with bipolar disorder because there's still a view around that bipolar equals old-fashioned manic depression. So I think we've still got to recognise that there's a level of stigma out there. In Australia, we've probably destigmatized mood disorders and psychiatry better than any other country in the world. It's just been fabulous to observe, but there's still a way to go. Do people with depression or bipolar disorder recover? Uh, do they ever get cured or do people just simply learn to manage it better? Well, again, it's horses for courses. It depends on the type of depression. So if somebody comes along with an adjustment depression, you know, caused by, you know, um, somebody making a terribly critical remark and cancelling their career and you listen to them empathically and you give common sense advice, they may come out of their depression quickly and never have another episode. If they've got melancholic depression, meaning something along, you know, the analogy would be diabetes or hypertension, then they may need a medication for an extended period to keep the depression at bay, to keep them out of that, of that depression. So the model there is more a maintenance model rather than a curative model. But again, there's no single answer. Some people, depression is a transient experience. Some people might have some severe episodes of depression that will bring them to their knees but may not need medication for more than a few months or for a year or so. And others will need it as a maintenance medication. And that's where, again, the issue of the art and the science comes into play and where the one-size-fits-all model is of extreme concern to me because of the risks of either people being put on unnecessary medication for decades or years or, conversely, people not receiving medication when they would benefit from it. You quote a writer who said that their dark night of the soul had taught them compassion and self-respect. Do you think the knowledge of that kind of pain might make you more open to joy? Yes, indeed. There's a wonderful book written called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist who went into a number of camps, including Auschwitz, during the Second World War, and has written this riveting book. And he came out saying, this was a wonderful experience. I learned so much. And he ended up with a therapy called Logotherapy, which hasn't existed, but it's still worth reading. I would encourage everybody to read Man's Search for Meaning because it shows you how this individual triumphed over the greatest adversity. I mean, he lost his wife. He lost three other family members. He was in the most dreadful of circumstances, and yet he woke up each day to determine to find something positive. And that's why people who've had a severe depressive mood disorder often become so resilient. They almost become uh, rather like Superman. And I can certainly remember John Conrad's the Olympic swimmer who tragically died recently. When we carefully discussed the possibility of him telling his story about his mood disorder. When his story came out in the paper, the following weekend he was doing a charity swim and he came out of the water at Bondi Beach and there were about 2,000 people along the beach and they just all applauded him and John said, subsequently I've never had anyone criticise me and in fact my mood disorder became under better control and I, I observe that very commonly. When people out themselves and talk about their mood disorder, they often develop a level of resilience that is highly protective, but it also brings out the, those wonderful attributes that are described by Viktor Frankl when man can find meaning in adversity. You're the founder of the Black Dog Institute. Now, I remember William Styron wrote that book called Darkness Visible, which seems to imply that his depression, which is what the book was about, was like a big sort of awful frightening black cloud but describing depression as a black dog that's a really different thing to me it sounds mm. like it's like a, some, a companion that trots alongside you how do you see it yeah it's it's a metaphor and that's a common explanation for it and in fact we 
wrote a book which we called Tracking the Black Dog that was done by my colleague, Kerry Ayres, where we had 150 people take part in an essay competition to search for the origin of the meaning of the black dog. Many people put it down to Winston Churchill because he described his depression in so many terms. But Churchill was a historian and he borrowed from Boswell and Johnson who both used that term. But what we found from these essays is that the term goes back into ancient Celtic times where people would describe their depression as either a black dog or a black fog. And what happens in biological depression, one of the key symptoms that patients report is cognitive dysfunction. They'll say that their thinking becomes cloudy, becomes foggy. So one of my patients said, normally I cook at home at night, but when I'm depressed, I can't even remember the recipe of an omelette. So it's got, the black dog has got multiple meanings. The black fog that envelops the individual when they're depressed, the companion that trots along beside them, which may be ugly and vehement and oppressive and dangerous, or you turn it into your friend, your companion. Dogs can be trained to become more helpful and and to be brought to heel too, can't they? Yeah, and we had an interesting study going at one stage where we were interested in whether dogs could be diagnostic dogs for mood disorders because what what we found was people with bipolar disorder would say when they were depressed, their dog would come and lie on their chest and put its paws around their neck. And when they went high, their dog would go bouncing around the room, you know, really animated and agitated and distressed. And we thought this might be useful, that we could actually train dogs to be diagnostic dogs to inform their owner that their mood swing had just happened and they better take notice and do something about it. <laughs> it's been so great speaking with you, Professor Gordon Parker. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate it. Professor Gordon Parker is the co-author of a new book called Burnout, a guide to identifying burnout and pathways to recovery. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.